presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health, on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Your host is Dr. Bruce Bloom. What is the long-term efficacy and safety of loranidase in the treatment of mucopolysaccharidosis, or MPS1? Joining me to discuss MPS1 and current treatment options is Dr. Emil Kekas, author of numerous published articles and abstracts on MPS1 and alpha-L iduronidase. He holds a PhD in biological chemistry and is a board-certified physician focused on pediatrics and medical genetics. Dr. Kakis, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Bruce. I'm certainly happy to be here today and talk about my favorite topic, having been worked on treatment of MPS1 for the last 18 years. How'd you first get involved in treating MPS1 and doing research in that area? Well, many people ask me if I had a relative or some other reason to get into something that seems so rare, but... In fact, it was by luck. I happened to be working at UCLA for my Ph.D. and M.D. program, and Dr. Neufeld had joined the faculty there and became chair of the department I was in. And so I became exposed to her work and realized that there was a unique opportunity for this disease to get treated, and I set my career on basically one goal, which is to treat a disease that had never been treated before. And so MPS1 became my target, and I began working with her during my genetics fellowship. So give us a brief description of MPS1 and all the treatments that are available. MPS1 is a lysosomal storage disease that really affects every body system. But for a clinician, the thing that really happens here that you see is that the combination of organ storage, like liver and spleen-type storage, mixed with bony abnormalities and in some cases, neurological abnormalities. When you see patients that have bone, organ storage, as well as potentially neurological manifestations, these are the type of storage disease that are usually associated with mucopolysaccharidosis. Because so many body systems are involved, these patients have enormous number of medical problems, and they are at various stages of progression throughout their lives, and there's a great deal of heterogeneity between patients making it very difficult to diagnose many patients when they're first seen by the physician. So it's important for doctors to recognize the early signs of storage in the liver or spleen or bony abnormalities that might be part of the syndrome called dysostosis multiplex, which is basically abnormal formed bones. And by understanding and picking up some of these early signs, we hopefully get the diagnosis done earlier. Over a lifetime, the severe form or hurler form of MPS1 leads to death by age 10. And in the intermediate forms, usually in the second or third decade, and in the shape form, it's potentially compatible with a normal lifespan, although most patients end up dying in their fourth or fifth decades. So it's a lethal disease, multi-system and progressive, affecting many body systems. And... It's difficult to describe in just a few words, but basically there are a number of texts that go through the details, and I think it's been an incredible difficult challenge for patient people to manage, physicians to manage these patients because of the number of different problems that they have. How is loranidase administered to patients, and are there any other drugs required to be co-administered or other safety precautions during administration? Well, hydronidase is diluted into a saline infusion and provided by an infusion that takes 
three to four hours, and it needs to be given in the slow infusion essentially to incubate the whole body with the enzyme to allow it to get soaked up or taken up by the tissues. I try to advise people about this that it's not about getting the enzyme inside the patient. It's about incubating their bodies with it. And basically, it's a little bit more like essentially marinating the patient rather than sort of stuffing a turkey. And it's a real important factor that physicians should know is give these infusions over a period of time to get maximum distribution. Now, when you give it, in general, in the clinical studies, it was given with diphenhydramine or Benadryl, basically a antihistamine help protect the patients from allergic reactions. Some of the patients may not need this premedication, but it is recommended when infusions are begun that premedication with antihistamines are given. Potentially, antipyretics like acetaminophen can also be provided. And in cases where patients have infusion-associated allergic reactions, it may be necessary in some of those patients to provide corticosteroids premedication as well. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Our guest today is Dr. Emil Kekas, and we are discussing the long-term efficacy and safety of loranidase in the treatment of MPS-1. So, Dr. Kekas, during the first Phase 1 and Phase 2 studies on loranidase, what were the key efficacy outcomes from those studies? Well, those studies were, the first study was a 10-patient open-label study, and what we showed is that the enzyme therapy given once weekly over a period of 52 weeks could reduce storage in the liver and spleen as well as in what was excreted in the urine, demonstrating the biochemical replacement of the enzyme and its function in the body. We were also able to show improvements in growth and as well in range of motion. And in patients with sleep apnea, we were able to show improvements in their sleep apnea. And overall, though not measured, patients showed an incredible increase in energy and activity level, which was certainly encouraging for us at the time. So we were pretty pleased by what we were seeing, an improvement in the storage parameters as well as clinical parameters. So that's really the main things that came out of it. From a safety standpoint, we did see some patients with infusion-associated reactions, allergic reactions that could be urticaria or hive-type reactions during infusions. And most of them were mild to moderate and manageable. And for some patients, they'd be doing fine, have no problems, and have a period, let's say, of a, of a few weeks where they have some of these reactions, then they seem to subside over time. When you look at the, those patients in the long run, in the long-term follow-up study at six years, they had stopped having any infusion-associated reactions by that point in time. And so we think that over time, the patients appear to adapt better to the infusion. So those are the main things we got out of the Phase one 2 study. And what about the Phase three study? How many patients were there, and what was the outcome of those studies? Yeah, in the Phase three study, it was a double-blind, placebo-controlled program that basically focused on proving whether the patients had an improvement in the forced vital capacity or in their six-minute walk test. And what we were able to show in that study was an improvement in the forced vital capacity in the patients, it was almost 5% improvement, and that was statistically significant. And we showed in the six-minute walk test a 38-meter improvement, which was 
just missed its significance at a p-value of 0.06. So we had both those things showing some effect. We also showed that the urine substrate, of course, declined and the liver size improved as we had seen before. Ultimately, we did additional studies in those patients and followed them for what was a total of four-year period to help look at those clinical parameters over the long haul. But in general, from the phase three study, we showed an improvement in the functional capacity and the breathing of patients. And, you know, we were pleased to be able to show that in this kind of small study with the population of patients as wide-ranging as six years to 40 in a clinical study that you could show a benefit like this. How many patients are there in the United States with MPS-1? Well, we don't have an exact number, but it's on the order of probably a couple hundred. So it's a pretty rare disorder. Although there's only a couple hundred, they probably use medical care at 10 times or 100 times the usual rate. So their exposure to the healthcare system is probably much greater than you would expect based on their numbers. And what has happened to the patients that have been on long-term loronidase? Are they still doing well? Can patients stay on it for life? Well, we have follow-up studies. Just actually this year, in 2009, there was a publication by Dr. Clark in which showed the long-term efficacy safety of loronidase. That was in the phase three patient population. In that study, 40 patients had been followed for, in total, would have been about three and a half to four years of treatment. Again, they showed very good reductions in the urine and liver signs of storage. The functional vital capacity increased about 250 cc's. That's the amount of maximum amount of lung air that can be forced out. But as corrected by, as percent predicted corrected, it was about a small decline. The six-minute walk test had, at two years, a 31-meter improvement by Three and a half years is about 17 meters. And if you look at the population of patients, what you can see is that both for the forced vital capacity and the walk test, measures of breathing and running, essentially about three-fourths of the patients had an improvement or were stable, and one-fourth had declined some. So we showed in the majority of patients a good benefit in those two particular areas. If you look at other things like uh, sleep apnea, and there was a decrease of about seven events per hour, and range of motion increased by about 17 degrees in the shoulder flexion, which is a pretty substantial increase if you think about how much that affects your ability, for example, to comb your hair or brush your teeth. Some of those changes that we see in this phase three extension, we also saw in our phase one, two patients that I mentioned earlier in the follow-up study, and that's been published as well by Sefuentes et al. in 2007, the six-year follow-up study. And we showed there, again, that over the long haul, the range of motion continued to get better, and the changes in the airway were sustained and improved. For those patients that don't have cardiac disease, they stayed stable, and the storage continues to get better and improved over time. But not everything is better. Clearly, some things are not has improved, and patients that had significant heart valve disease, for example, at baseline, may still need to get valve replacements. Patients with carpal tunnel syndrome may still need to get carpal tunnel surgery. And so there are some things that clearly you could not reverse once present, and 
one thing we have to understand is that in all of these patients we've been treating in these studies, they're all older patients. You know, there are children that have been with the disease for five to seven years at minimum, and some of them have been sick for maybe 40 years in the study. So what will be very important in the long run in looking at these long-term outcomes is to look at what's happening to these patients when we treat from birth. And at this point in time, we've been finding a number of patients in the, treated from very young age who have had an even better response. And so we're encouraged that perhaps treating before irreversible complications have occurred will result in better long-term outcomes. What's the role of loranidase in combination with stem cell transplants to treat the severe hurler form of the disease? Well, there have been a number of case reports, and most recently there was an 18-patient summary published by Wynn et al. What I think the general consensus now in the transplant community is that treatment with the loranidase in hurler patients who may undergo bone marrow or stem cell transplants is beneficial in preparing them and allowing them to get through those procedures effectively. Certainly for some of the patients, they are so sick before the transplant that they can't even do the transplant. And there have been case reports, one noted in the WIND paper, but other ones by Chakrapani who showed that heart failure, for example, in a really young hurler patient can be reversed, making them healthy enough to survive a transplant, whereas they would not be able to undergo transplant previously. So there are certainly uh, improvements in heart function and breathing that have benefited these patients and allowed them with the severe form of MPS-1 to get through a transplant. And after transplants, the procedure has been continuing the enzyme therapy until the patient's engrafted. So it's been a very helpful adjunct to the transplant process for the severe form of hurler. The reason doctors are doing the transplant is to try to treat the brain which is more affected than the severe or hurler form of MPS-1, and enzyme therapy does not appear to improve the brain at this point in time. So right now, I think the general consensus is that combining enzyme therapy with stem cell transplantation is beneficial in obtaining a safer outcome for patients in the transplant. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Emil Kekas, for the time he took with us to discuss MPS-1 and loranidase. Dr. Kakis, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Well, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals.